From the Jeff Nyquist Studios on California's North Coast and our flagship broadcast facilities at WIBG 1020, you're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Now with today's program, here's Jeff. I was at the gas station this week. I saw the prices are still high, uh, over $3 a gallon. And uh, we know that it's put a strain on the U.S. economy. We know that growth is down. We know that there's been some hedge funds in trouble. Uh, we've got this on our minds. And, of course, it's related to the Middle East and what happens there, the flow of oil. If anything should blow up, if anything should go wrong, if there should be a revolution in Saudi Arabia, if there should be trouble with Iran, the Gulf could be closed, the oil flow could be stopped. We have soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan fighting. The course of the war there, the course of the uh, counterinsurgency there is vital for seeing our young men come home and for an end to the killing. Uh, we've also got Iran manufacturing nuclear weapons or trying to develop the means for making a nuclear weapon stockpile. And the question of whether the United States or Israel is going to launch a first strike on Iran. And uh, to discuss the subject of the Middle East with me tonight, my guest is Ryan Morrow of WorldThreats.com. And his uh, book on the subject of Iraq is Death to America. And uh, he'll be with us right after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Thanks for making WIBG 1020 your first choice for the good news and the local news. The overwhelming response from throughout all of Atlantic City, Cape May, and suburban Philadelphia to our exciting lineup of programs begins with Harry Hurley and Hurley in the Mornings from 7 to 11. Then at 12 noon, it's your chance to call in and talk with Jay Seculo live. That's right, Jay moves to his new time at 12 noon. It's your chance to talk live with Jay. Then at 1 p.m., it's New Life Live with Steve Arterburn and the gang, as always, your questions are answered live right here on WIBG 1020. And at 2 p.m., join Dr. Charles Stanley for his new time slot right here at WIBG for In Touch. We're so thankful for the overwhelming response to WIBG 1020, and we thank you. And we encourage you to please sponsor and support the advertisers and programs you hear on Atlantic City, Cape May's number one home for Christian news talk and local two-way talk. WIBG 1020 AM. And now, once again, here's your host of the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. With me today is my special guest, Ryan Morrow. He's uh, He's got a website, worldthreats.com, and he's been uh, researching the Middle East, and he's written a book about Iraq. Uh, welcome to the show, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about Iraq first, since they've had this uh, troop surge, and you hear different reports, but it seems like people are accepting that it's working. Is that the case, or what's your take on it? I would have to say that pretty much the consensus of the Iraqis I talked to and of the troops on the ground is that the surge is working. Uh, we're taking territory, we're holding it, Al-Qaeda is fleeing, they're reestablishing themselves in other areas of the country, but nonetheless they're still fleeing, and I've been told that there's sometimes a dozen raids a day on al-Qaeda in Iraq. At the same time, over in Anbar province, we've won the sheikhs over, the tribal sheikhs there, uh, and they're working very closely with our forces. It's been a complete turnaround in Anbar province that most experts doubted could ever occur. Now, they tried a new strategy with this troop surge. It wasn't just that they had more troops. They actually had a, a strategy mapped out uh, uh, where they were securing one neighborhood at a time and they were making the populace feel safe and showing the community that they had a stake in turning in the bad guys. 
So this seems to be the formula that's working. Right, and classic counterinsurgency doctrine has always said that the key to defeating an insurgency is winning over the population. And you do that primarily through bringing about security. Uh, before, we would quickly turn over the area to Iraqi forces because we felt that if American forces had too large of a footprint, that would create resentment and fuel the insurgency. In fact, what we're seeing now is that areas where there's a greater number of American troops actually have a lower percentage of attacks as opposed to areas with less troops. And the Iraqis are really starting to stand up and fight these guys. Now, it's an interesting question that you raise. If, if we then start handing the country over to Iraqi security forces, are they going to be able to do as well? Or is the Iraqi military uh, corrupt and full of terrorists itself? Well, the Iraqi police is pretty incompetent. There are um, there are spies and saboteurs inside the Iraqi armed forces. That's a fact of life that we're going to have to deal with. Um, at the same time, the military sources I talk to say that there has been a change in the psyche of the Iraqi forces, that they're much more motivated now, uh, partly because of two reasons. On the one hand, all the talk of a withdrawal has made them finally say, okay, we're going to stand up, it's our country, the Americans are leaving. At the same time, uh, all the talk of withdrawal is discouraging other Iraqis because they fear that once they do stand up, we're not going to stick around and then they'll be killed. So it, it's having mixed effects, the talks of a withdrawal, but the greater integra integration we're having of the Iraqis' involvement in intelligence and counterinsurgency operations is really bringing about a lot of success. And the population, which is now being more heavily courted, uh, is pretty much killing more insurgents through the intelligence they're supplying than American forces have previously. Now that's very interesting, and it's encouraging. Um, the other question that I had about this is, now the government is uh, Shiite. Uh, you, we're building a, a democracy there, and the majority population, or the largest uh, segment of the population there is Shiite, which of course has religious ties to Iran and the, the Ayatollahs. Um, is this going to work ultimately? I mean, uh, can we trust a government that's beliefs are so alien uh, and whose uh, social and political history is so alien to democracy itself and to living in peace with people who believe differently? Well, I think expecting a Jeffersonian uh, 21st century democracy was always kind of an unrealistic dream uh, for Iraq. At the same time, though, there are the beginnings of a democratic society. There's human rights organizations. There's a there's a free press that rigorously investigates the actions of government. At the same time, um, there's a huge backlash against sectarian violence. Uh, they want a unity government. Polls consistently show Iraqis do not want their country split apart, and they want a government that will represent all the people of Iraq. Uh, and the average Sunni and Shiite, uh, they don't care uh, what other sect uh, an Iraqi might be a part of. Uh, one of my Iraqi friends described it to me as, well, Ryan, how many of your friends have brown eyes? I said, I, I don't know. Why would I know that? And he goes, well, why would you expect us to know how many of our friends are Sunnis? Because he's a, he's a Shiite. He said they pretty much didn't care until the recent violence occurred, and that's just because of fear. They want to know which areas are Sunni, which ones are Shiite, because uh, of the radicals are there. But the average Iraqi it, it doesn't really hate uh, members of other sects. So things are progressing along. Um, so I'm hopeful on that level. At the same time, I feel kind of like we're pushing uh, 
it would be as if we pushed women's rights, African-American rights, and social security reform onto America in the 1700s. You know, so Iraq's making a lot of progress, but at the same time, I think our expectations are a little bit too high. Hmm, interesting. And shifting over to the domestic political side of this, we know that the president has taken major uh, political hits for staying the course in Iraq. Uh, there's been polls showing that Americans want out of the Iraq situation. They blame Bush for it. It's been expensive. Um, and the Democrats are capitalizing, and it looks like in the American presidential race, we're going to get a Democratic president next time because of the tremendous beating the Republican Party has taken over this. Now, is this going, this change in Iraq going to be accepted? And, uh, is President Bush going to get, um, uh, a rise in his popularity? Is the Republican Party going to have a chance to win this election because of uh, this turnaround in Iraq if this turnaround is, is real and, and is sustained? I really don't think so. I think you're going to continue to see his poll ratings drop. Most people don't think that's possible, but I think it is. Uh, the reason being, you have governments in Iran and Syria that continue to support the insurgency. And with foreign backing for an insurgency, no matter what tactical ground you may gain, no matter what success you might have inside of Iraq, when you have those outside players sending in terrorists to blow things up, you're not going to win until that foreign support stops. At the same time, this surge isn't a quick fix. It's going to take, I would imagine, at least another seven or eight months to really uh, see concrete, undeniable advances in progress. I'm not expecting General Petraeus in September to come and tell us a miracle happening on the ground. Um, I think that it's going to be very mixed results, and that largely is because We've begun a very slow process that should have started in the beginning of winning over the Iraqi population and securing the population so that they can fight the insurgents. So, in other words, seven or eight months before we can really establish publicly whether this is effective, and by then the Democrats and the Republicans would have picked their presidential candidates. Basically, the primaries are going to probably be decided by next March or April. Um that means that the rhetoric will have already taken hold and the public may just simply be hypnotized by what has been said in the uh, primaries. I agree that's what's going to happen. There could be a 100% turnaround in Iraq. There could be no attacks going on in that country, and I'm convinced that the American public would still be against our effort there simply because they don't feel that uh, any potential gain we might have from winning in Iraq is worth the cost. Most of them don't see the benefit to them as individuals in uh, having our young men and women over there. Most Americans, I don't think, understand what is at stake over there. And a lot of them, perhaps ignorantly, see Middle Easterners as forever trapped and trapped in this cycle of hating each other and killing each other almost as if they're animals who can't be reasoned with. And most Americans, and I think you would probably agree with me on this, just want to say, let's just get out of the Middle East, let them solve their own problems. Uh, this doesn't affect me. Very interesting. With me is Ryan Morrow. His website is worldthreats.com. And he's done a lot of uh, basic interviewing of people and, and following of things and, and talking about uh, what's going on in Iraq and also in, in other Middle East countries. You um, 
You mentioned Syria and Iran playing a, a, a very important role in Iraq, uh, supporting the insurgents. And we have issues with Syria and Iran. Iran, particularly because Iran is building a nuclear weapons manufacturing capability. They deny they're doing it. But they're doing it with Russian, mostly Russian assistance and with some Chinese help. And there's been speculation about whether the Bush administration in its final days is going to make the decision to attack Iran and bomb its nuclear weapons uh, f program in, in its cradle and prevent that country from being able to produce some number of nuclear warheads every year. Uh, do you think such an attack is going to take place? At this point, I'm not seeing evidence uh, to indicate that we're going to bomb Iran. The basic steps that should be taken before bombing Iran or launching any type of war against any country haven't been taken. I've been very disappointed in the second term of George Bush, particularly because he hasn't sponsored the Iranian Democratic opposition. I, I feel we failed to grasp the unconventional war that's being waged upon us by Iran. Uh, we're basically not retaliating for them killing our soldiers, and that's a disgrace. And, and in regards to the Russian role, uh, this is pretty much what's going on with the insurgency. Yes, Iran and Syria are responsible for the insurgency's survival. At the same time, though, the weapons that Syria is providing to the insurgents are being provided by Russia, and they're being provided by Belarus. There's an arms pipeline that comes from Russia that comes down into Syria, and that's where they're distributed to the insurgents. Iran is being backed by Russia, but there's a Chinese arms pipeline where arms come from China to Iran and then are distributed to insurgents in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. And the Washington Times has done some great reporting on that lately. That was a pretty much a new revelation. So it seems that we're faced with a giant anti-American bloc that is taking advantage of our weaknesses in unconventional warfare and our weaknesses in intelligence gathering. And frankly, I feel like we're playing right into their hands when we try to talk with them. And when we go into this atmosphere of deniability, denying the fact that, you know, some people just can't be reasoned with, sometimes our goals are so op opposed and so opposite to their goals that a confrontation is inevitable. You know, this is very reminiscent of the Cold War in Vietnam in that the American people, regardless of the success on the ground, have turned against the war. And you have the equivalent of the Ho Chi Minh Trail in which Chinese and Russian military goods were shipped down to the Viet Cong and, and the North Vietnamese bases. Uh, we are having almost a repeat of this. And instead of sanctuaries in Laos and Cambodia, we've got sanctuaries in Iran and Syria from which these guerrilla operations can be launched against our soldiers in Iraq. I agree, and it, the most sad thing about that is that at least we could argue that in Southeast Asia, if we were to expand the war, it could trigger World War III. Iran, while it's the greatest state sponsor of terrorism, is probably the easiest problem to deal with. The Iranian people are so opposed to that regime and just need really basic help to really topple the mullahs, or at the very least uh, put so much pressure on them that they have to curb their efforts. Syria is also another weak country, and nothing disappoints me more than seeing these weak countries take on a superpower and face no consequences. Now, when you say weak, you mean that the government is unpopular in those countries? Their armed uh, forces aren't very strong, and also the regimes are very unpopular. 
There are weak regimes that will fall very quickly if we were to take the war to them. I'm not advocating going to war against them, but what I'm advocating is playing the same game. If they want to sponsor insurgents in Iraq killing our soldiers, we can retaliate by sponsoring the democratic opposition in their countries or using special forces to wage unconventional war uh, through sabotage, uh, psychological operations, and various other means in their countries. And we can be much more successful at it, but it's politically unpopular, and it's, and it's a hard thing to do. The bureaucracies won't like it, but when it comes down to it, American soldiers are being killed. Let's do something about it. It is very interesting to me that this brings another analogy from the war in Vietnam, is that when Nixon bombed Cambodia, where the sanctuaries that the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong were piling supplies and building up forces to attack in the flank of Vietnam, that uh, Nixon took major hit for going in there, and there was a, a huge political controversy. And given the weakness of this president, President Bush, it, it is inconceivable that he could have the political support he would need to launch a similar kind of strike into the border areas of Iran or Syria. And uh, I just don't know how that would happen. And, of course, according to your analysis from what you've just said, if we don't do these attacks, the insurgency is going to continue. The Russian weapons are going to continue to flow in, and, and Arab fighters from all around the Arab world are going to continue to flood in. And we're not going to be able to get the victory that we ought to have. Is the only solution to take out or cause the collapse of the regimes in Iran and Syria, is that the only way to win in Iraq? Well, maybe not necessarily Syria. While I would love to see Syria's government gone, Syria's government is entirely reliant upon Iran. So if there was regime change in Iran, there is some possibility that Syria would modify its behavior just because the government would want to survive. But yes, I don't see any way to stop the violence in Iraq without regime change in Iran, and I think that can be achieved uh, through internal overthrow. And it's very interesting with Russia and China supporting these rogue states that uh, pressure could not be applied economically on Russia and China. Now, it seems to me that unlike the Cold War when massive economic pressure, I mean, Russia and China were isolated when the Vietnam War was going full blast in the late 60s. Uh, China didn't have any economy to speak of. She couldn't trade with hardly anyone. Um, and, and Russia, of course, has a fairly autarkic economy itself. Soviet Union did. Uh, but now the, the situation's different. Europe depends on Russian energy exports. Uh, the whole world trades with China. China's a massive economic power. It's going to, in a few years, perhaps surpass the United States in uh, gross national product. Um, we're really in a, in a much worse position, uh, strategically with these major powers, not just to mention the position in Iraq, than we were in the worst days of the Cold War. I agree with that. And even worse is the fact that we are funding China's economy, that our trade links are so close that our economic survival largely depends on their economic survival. And at the same time, we're propping up that communist regime there that does wish to do us harm. So that's very discouraging. So in a, in a sense, we're, we're buying the best enemy that money can buy. Absolutely. In China. Yeah. It's um, it's very, very, very uh, dangerous uh, to be in a position as a country and to not know that these other countries are our enemy. And although we, we talk about bin Laden and we talk about the terrorist threat, in the United States, people do not talk 
about Russia and China being enemies. Some people talk about it. We got to watch out for those people. We can't trust those people. But from our government officials, we do not hear from the president or from any other national leaders or congressional leaders about the threat from China. Uh, everybody seems to be walking very lightly and being very diplomatic. Um, just to go through this as a geostrategic exercise, if we pull out of Iraq, we get a democratic president, we pull out, the place collapses, you, you, you have a Shiite rump state that becomes a satellite of Iran forming there, Syria and Turkey gobble up other little chunks. What would the consequences be, both for the United States as a power, its credibility, uh, the global economy, and the influence of these other great powers? What, what would the fallout be? Well, everyone complains about the instability of the Middle East, but the current instability of the Middle East is only a fraction of what will occur if we pull out of Iraq and the Iraqi government falls. Basically, what you'll see is the Shiites, and not even just the Shiites, but all the Iraqi politicians, and you're seeing this occur even today, are kind of coming to Iran, and they're looking to them for protection because they feel that while Iran is a long-term partner, the United States is bound to leave in a few years. And I'm noticing this trend. So I think that you would see Iran greatly expand their power. At the same time, Iran will be encouraged. Uh, we'll have very little that we could do to retaliate against Iran, and I think you'll see their sponsorship of terrorism and insurgency throughout the entire Middle East greatly expand. I think Iranian intelligence operations in countries like Bahrain and especially Saudi Arabia will increase tenfold. Even worse is the genocide that will probably occur in Iraq. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest problems we're having in Iraq today is that the Iraqis don't trust us because of how many times we look the other way when Shiites and Kurds, even Sunni rebels, would be massacred. Remember at the end of the Gulf War when uh, President Bush, the elder, said, rise up. And all the Iraqis took that to mean that we would fight along their side if they decided to overthrow Saddam. We let them get cut down and massacred. Yeah, that was that was appalling. That was terrible. Um, I'd like to talk more about the Saudi Arabia. The you touched on this Saudi Arabia being destabilized, but uh, we have a break coming. So, uh, with me is Ryan Morrow from uh, WorldThreats.com, and this is the Jeff Nyquist show. We'll be back right after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Thanks for making WIBG 1020 a part of your life. We are Live Radio 1020, WIBG. Where more people every day hear the truth. From Hurley in the Morning to The Wondrous Story with Dave Bailey, Jay Sekulow live in the American Center for Law and Justice, and Josh Henning Afternoons. South Jersey's cutting edge Christian news talk and your station for women oldies every weekend. WIBG 1020 and WIBG.com, plugging you into life. Now, once again, here's your host of the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. We're back on the Jeff Nyquist Show, and my guest, Ryan Morrow from WorldThreats.com, is with us. And we've been talking about the situation in the Middle East, the strategy of the Middle East, and um, we, we were talking about what would happen if the United States pulled out of Iraq, what the consequences would be. And uh, Ryan touched on a number of them, uh, the strengthening of Iran, for example, and uh, a genocide in Iraq and the the uh, instability in Saudi Arabia. Now, Saudi Arabia is a very important, and also Kuwait and the other Gulf states, for oil production. 
would that oil production potentially be disrupted, and could we see a revolution or a complete uh, chaos in Saudi Arabia if the United States pulled out of Iraq? I think that's definitely what will happen. Um, I think that defeat in Iraq will expand to defeat in the entire Middle East and perhaps even to other regions as every current United States ally will know we are no longer reliable, we are not willing to put up with a fight, and I think you will steadily see every single one of our allies go to countries like China and Russia for protection as their new long-term partner. So that's extremely important. And, of course, if they go to China or Russia, if Saudi Arabia goes to China and Russia for its survival, uh, China and Russia could cause all kinds of trouble with that. And we already have trouble with the oil situation in the world. Um, going back to, we're talking about destabilization in the Middle East. There's been these stories out of Syria saying that a war with Israel was imminent. They were talking about it in the summer, of course, connected to uh, the activities of Hezbollah in Lebanon. And we, we'd had a war a year ago, uh, out there and the Israelis kind of uh, were considered to have lost because they, they lost tanks and they didn't quite do the, the kind of damage that people thought they were going to do. Uh, are we looking at another uh, conflict in Lebanon? And is is it true that uh, Syria could go to war with Israel and, and survive at this point? I think so. I think the political leadership in Israel is that weak. Um, I think that what's probably going to happen is Syria is going to try to provoke Israel to bomb Lebanon, if possible, Syria, in order to destabilize the Middle East so much that there is no chance that the United States would either win in Iraq or bomb Iran's nuclear facilities. They know if the Middle East can be disrupted to that level, uh, the chances of an American airstrike become very, very limited. I base this on the fact that the Syrian government has called on all of their employees and Syrian citizens to leave Lebanon. Syria and Iran's leaders openly say that in the next few months there's going to be a major conflict in the region. Syria's uh, state press has been predicting that there's going to be sort of like a Hezbollah of the Golan Heights that's going to launch resistance and guerrilla attacks against the Israelis. I think that's probably what's going to happen. There's going to be a series of guerrilla attacks from new groups, Hezbollah, Hamas, and then new groups that will just spring out of nowhere that are probably Syrian and Iranian fronts, forcing Israel to retaliate and hopefully, uh, from Iran and Syria's point of view, that will bring down the government in Lebanon. Now, this is a very psychological strategy. Let's see if we can make this clear to the listeners. The idea, of course... Throughout the Middle East, the Arab peoples and the Iranians, uh, Muslims all throughout, uh, detest, are taught from the cradle to detest the Israelis and the Israeli state or the Israeli entity, as they like to call it. And therefore, a conflict with Israel in which there's violence currently going on, strong violence, bombings, things of that nature, raise the antagonism level and make it more difficult, since the United States is known to be an ally of Israel, make it more difficult for the United States to conduct diplomacy and to operate, not only in Iraq, but throughout the Middle East. So is this the purpose of the strategy? And you, you mentioned preventing a U.S. airstrike, for example, on Iran. Is that why they're trying to provoke something now? That's right. I think it's to foil all of our strategic efforts in the, in the region by doing just what you said by riling up the Muslim world so that they can become the saviors of the Arabs and Muslims that are oppressed by the Israelis and the Western colonists, as they'd like to call them. 
At the same time, though, I think Iran eventually, and this is just speculation on my part, would love for the United States to launch a limited airstrike on Iran that fails to accomplish regime change as a way to neutralize the Iranian opposition, rally some Iranians to the into the regime's arms, and provide an excuse for Iran to carry out whatever apocalyptic goals that they have. Uh, like the President Ahmadinejad has uh, that dream, that uh, prophecy about the hidden imam coming and saving the Muslim world when they take on the infidels in a final world war. That's why he's not scared of the United States, because he believes that no matter what the odds, the hidden imam will come out out of that well and will save the Muslim world and destroy the infidels. So, But he wants that to appear defensive. So I, I believe that one of these days... Iran will try and provoke the United States into some sort of armed conflict in order to bring about that war in the prophecy that he believes in. And could it be, along with that, that they realize that if they just let the clock run out, that the United States is going to pull out of Iraq and that they're going to have the confusion that they want to sort of play the next strategy cards that they want to play vis-a-vis Israel? Or do they want to, on the other hand, uh, get this kind of conflict with Israel going and intensifying before the U.S. pull out? I've heard it said that there's something the Assyrians are expecting to happen in November. That's what uh, some Israeli intelligence-connected websites are saying. That was November. Originally, all the reporting seemed to indicate it would be over the summer, but now some people are saying that's been delayed to November. Nonetheless, the way that Syria is preparing their armed forces, it's obvious something's going to happen. I think that at least once a year, Iran and Syria have to rally the Muslim world against Israel as a unifying force, because the main problem with Iran and Syria trying to become the superpowers, the leaders of the Muslim world, is the fact that the Muslim world is so fractured. The one unifying factor is a war against a non-Muslim entity, especially the one that they hate the most, the Israelis. So mm-hmm. I think that they view it as a primarily as a way to short their own regimes and kind of unify the Muslim world into one force. Well, it's very interesting. There has not been a major war between uh, the Arab world and Israel since the Yom Kippur War, which was like 35 years ago, uh, almost. And in that war, of course, and in the previous Six-Day War, and it was always Egypt was the key, and Egypt being the largest uh, Arab military power in the world, the most important with the largest army, the most sophisticated army. Uh, how is Egypt sitting throughout all this in the Mubarak regime? I mean, is Egypt going to maintain the um, uh, the Sinai as a demilitarized zone? Is it going to respect that? Or is at some point Egypt going to pull out and say, all right, we're we're really against uh, Israel after all. We're joining up with Syria and, and our other Arab brothers again, and, and we're going to try to eradicate the state of Israel. Um, is that going to happen, or is, is Egypt still committed to, to peace? I think the Mubarak regime is playing a very delicate balancing act, just like the Saudis are. On the one hand, the greatest political opposition Mubarak faces is from the Muslim Brotherhood, which is radical, and it's Sunni, and it's financed by the Saudis. So on one level... They're very scared of a major conflict erupting with Israel because then that riles up the Muslim Brotherhood, and it could lead to the regime's overthrow or forcing him to become more radicalized for his own survival. Um, On the other hand, he doesn't want to seem uh, too pro-American because that will also rile up the majority in his country. 
Um, he's also against democracy, Mubarak is. Uh, he's jailed Ayman Noor, uh, and the reason he does all of this is because he doesn't know who will come to power in the aftermath of a civil war or some type of internal revolution in Egypt, but he knows that the current regime is bound to fall unless all the free press, freedom of discussion is pretty much shut down. He can't have any type of enemy political opposition running, otherwise that government will fall, which is why the United States kind of buddies up with Mubarak, because we see him as the lesser of two evils. So Egypt's playing a very delicate yeah, and yet we've been trying to push democracy and freedom on Egypt, and wouldn't that be counterproductive to our interests if if we push democracy and freedom on Egypt and Mubarak's regime takes major criticism and is unable to maintain itself against these fanatics, and we get an Islamist revolution in Egypt, that would just be the ultimate defeat for the United States in the Middle East, wouldn't it? I agree. I think it would be on par with the withdrawal from Iraq in, in terms of its negative consequences for U.S. foreign policy. So I think you would see radical Muslims come to power, primarily because the United States and the West hasn't really done anything to bolster the, demo, the more democratic-oriented forces inside of Egypt, which, is, which have largely been silenced. What's interesting about Egypt is that they're allowing Hamas to run tunnels into Israeli territory to smuggle weapons in, uh, the Ba'athists of Iraq, their largest propaganda TV station, Al-Zawa, uh, operates out of Egypt. So at, while Egypt kind of sponsors anti-Americanism and radical Islam, they are threatened by it. So it's an interesting cycle where their survival depends upon their enemy's success. It's very similar to the situation in Saudi Arabia as well, uh, isn't it? Oh, I, definitely, where Saudi Arabia kind of tries to direct all the outrage and all the anger towards the Saudi royal family onto Israel and the United States. There is nothing funnier than reading some of the Saudi newspapers that try and blame every domestic trouble on Israel. Yeah, that is funny, since Israel has nothing to do with Saudi Arabia, really. Um, now, I, I don't know if you how up you are on Sudan. We know that Sudan has a major Chinese influence in it. Sudan's just south of Egypt. Uh, is there any thing more on this a Chinese uh, uh, a huge Chinese labor force has moved into Sudan and I understand that this labor force is a trained militia possibly even military units in it um, is is China's beachhead there in the Middle East is that is that going to become a future staging ground for China uh, possibly putting pressure on some of these uh, Middle Eastern countries well I don't know if China will put pressure on most of the Middle Eastern countries, because most of them seem to be in league with China. But as for Sudan, all of the sanctions that have been put on Sudan seem to have come out null and void, because they're making so much money off of their oil deals with China. I just saw a report saying that the sanctions are having no gain in putting pressure on the Sudanese government due to the Chinese help. So I think that you're seeing the Sudanese government almost become an African colony of China, and they have hmm. hundreds of thousands of Chinese in Sudan, um, and helping them in all sorts of ways. At the same time, the government of Sudan is allied with Iran, and more recently, they're allied again with Al-Qaeda. Sudan's government is very vicious, and there's been uh, a sort of a genocide taking place against uh, Christians there, hasn't there? That's right. The Christian community in Sudan could very well go extinct if we continue to allow things to happen as they currently are. Luckily, um, for 
whatever reason, the international community seems to be paying more attention to what's going on in Darfur and throughout the Sudan. Uh, Hollywood is paying more attention to what's going on there than than in some other places like Iraq. But uh, nonetheless, there is an opportunity there with international focus on Sudan. Hmm. Is there an awareness in all this propaganda about the closeness between this vile government in Sudan and China, and communist China? Is there a growing awareness of this? I don't seem to pick up on that. Um, yeah, I don't either. I, I haven't heard any celebrity bring that up. I just hear them no. complain all the time that we don't spend enough money. Richard Gere, for a while, was worried about Tibet, and uh, yeah. which was kind of interesting. But... Uh, um, well, now, we've covered a lot of the countries. I was thinking about asking about Pakistan. Pakistan is not an Arab country. It's not really in the Middle East, per se. It's on the edge of the Middle East. It's it's part of the Indian subcontinent. It's a very important uh, state in our fight against al-Qaeda and in Afghanistan. And we have a, a dictator, Musharraf, in this country that we've been working with. And uh, there's, it's been believed that bin Laden has been hiding out in the mountains in northern Pakistan these many years since he fled Afghanistan. Uh, what do you see happening in Pakistan? Are the fears that the country's going to unravel and that we're going to get an Islamist revolution there, uh, are these fears more justified now than ever before? I think so. I think as Mushar takes more action against Taliban and al-Qaeda elements in Pakistan, uh, you're seeing a population that's largely sympathetic to radical Islam rise up against Musharraf. His regime is not stable, and that's very scary. His intelligence service, the ISI, seems to operate against him at every turn. So, unfortunately, it seems we are stuck with Musharraf at the time, even though he doesn't act uh, fully 100% uh, in as much as we'd like in the war on terrorism. But this is what we have to deal with. Uh, Pakistan has one of the most radical populations that we know of. Uh, in the Islamic world. It's Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt. Ironically enough, uh, these populations are governed by corrupt governments who are aligned with the United States, uh, whereas governments who are anti-American, such as Iran and Syria, tend to govern populations that are a little bit more pro-American. So, actually, I think what's going to have to happen is we're going to have to get ourselves off of our addiction to oil so that we're not so dependent upon regimes like Saudi Arabia uh, and in Egypt and Musharraf, but we're dependent on him for other reasons, so that we can cut off support and cut off uh, this cycle that's happening where we align ourselves with governments that oppress their people, and then that allows the government and the people to export their hatred onto us and fuel terrorism. Hmm. And in uh, in this prospect of, of Pakistan suffering a revolution, I mean, here's the country that has nuclear weapons. It's a nuclear power. Um, if that one went over, you would talk about uh, these nuclear weapons suddenly becoming very, very important in a way that they haven't been before. And, and as far as uh, India's involvement, uh, India would be terrified if there was a, an Islamist revolution in Pakistan, and there might even be a nuclear war on the Indian subcontinent. I mean, there has been talk that India has a plan for preemptively striking Pakistan's nuclear positions and, and talk about something that could light a fire throughout the all of, whole of South Asia, and of course involving China, since China's allied technically with Pakistan. 
do you hear anything about India and what's going on there with India's view of things? I mean, we've heard that India is getting closer to China, which is right. Um, I don't have as many good sources in India as I do over in the Middle East. However, my impression is, is that they do have a contingency plan to go into Pakistan should an Islamic revolution occur. And you know what? I think we better have a similar plan also. Um, luckily, the Pakistani military, which while it does have some big radical Islamic elements inside of it, is a little bit more secular, at least more secular than the intelligence service. So mm-hmm. the, Islam, the radical Muslims aren't as organized as uh, the Pakistani government uh, and how they oppress their people is kind of working out for us in this mannerism. But then the question becomes, when does it end? When do you start opening up and uh, trying to get rid of radical Islam? I think the key element of this is cutting off Saudi financing for the schools in Pakistan, Turkey, Egypt, and elsewhere. Um, until that happens, we can't defeat the ideology of radical Islam. Hmm. With me is Ryan Morrow from WorldThreats.com. We're talking about the Middle East, and uh, we're going to talk. I'm going to ask Ryan about Afghanistan, where there's still been fighting going on after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist. Plugging you into life. We are Live Radio 1020 WIBG. Whether it's Hurley in the morning, Henning in the afternoon, Dr. Jim Dobson in Focus on the Family. South Jersey's fastest growing Christian news talk. Now with more than a million listeners and hits at WIBG 1020. WIBG. 1020 WIBG. Or at WIBG.com. Plugging you into life. And now, once again, here's your host of the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. All right, we're back, and with me is Ryan Morrow uh, from WorldThreats.com, and he's done a lot of uh, uh, journalism and and research and interviewing people uh, involving the Middle East conflict. And, of course, we have troops in Afghanistan, and there's been talk about a resurgent Taliban, and I've, I've even heard these stories repeated from servicemen coming back and from others saying that some of these insurgents in Afghanistan are people who are actually from former Soviet uh, Central Asian republics, uh, Uzbeks or whatever, uh, uh, Tajiks, and also from uh, Muslim areas of China. Uh, have you heard anything like this about the the kind of insurgency we're talking about? Uh, most of it is Pakistani, uh, Chechen, uh, coming up from Central Asia, like you said. Um, one of China's western provinces is almost entirely Muslim, and they're coming from there as well. Um, most of the Taliban's gains in Afghanistan don't come from Afghan support. They come from the support of Muslims from outside of Afghanistan. And hmm. tries on the border. Now, I uh, saw a report. the The number one journalist in in uh, Pakistan now, uh, he's the man who who interviewed Bin Laden uh, last. Um, and I'm trying to remember his name. It starts with an H. Hamid Mir. Hamid Mir. Hamid Mir made the statement some months ago that the weapons being supplied to the rebels, the insurgents, the Islamists in Afghanistan were coming from two, mainly from two sources. He said from Iran and from Russia, which is quite extraordinary. Um, have you heard this uh, as well? Do you, has has Hamid Mir continued to make these statements? 
Well, yeah, Hamid Mir actually made those revelations in an interview he did with me. I talked to Hamid Mir on and off, and he uh, was telling me about the sources that were telling him about the Russian advisors in Pakistan and parts of Afghanistan that are supplying the Taliban. And he seems convinced about it. Uh, his sources were in the Afghan Defense Ministry and were very, very significant and open about it. It seems almost as if uh, the Afghans are have a consensus that the Russians are involved in this. Iran is also involved. It almost sounds like the Iranians, the Russians, and the Chinese are putting together forces on their own state soil and infiltrating them into Afghanistan, uh, along with Pakistanis, to keep this, this kind of war in Afghanistan going. Uh, from, from the people you've talked to, is there any chance that they're going to take Afghanistan back, or is this just going to continue to simmer along these lines indefinitely? And uh, just as a follow-up question, do you think that if the Democrats take power, they're also going to pull us out of Afghanistan? I actually don't think the Democrats will pull us out of Afghanistan. I think it's possible that they'll actually add troops to Afghanistan in order to reinforce their notion that Iraq was a distraction from the real war on terror. So I'm hopeful in that regard. Um, most servicemen I've talked to over in Afghanistan aren't scared of the Taliban taking over Afghanistan. Yes, the Taliban has been making inroads in southern Afghanistan, but they're not winning over the population. They're kind of just disrupting a lot. Um, our operations, uh, which are becoming more aggressive, are pretty successful. The key problem is the fact that uh, over in Pakistan, right across this imaginary border that's on a map that doesn't really exist, uh, is where the insurgents are coming through. They're actually shooting over that imaginary border, but our troops aren't allowed to shoot back because then that would be violating Pakistan's sovereignty. Uh, Richard Miniter, a really good journalist, was talking about that at the intelligence summit back in March, and he said that the only way Afghanistan could be, become another Vietnam would be as if we uh, kept restricting our soldiers and restricting our aircraft from uh, going over this, like I said, imaginary border that does not exist to anyone but us. Hmm, interesting. Um, let, let me ask you, Ryan, about uh, bin Laden and al-Qaeda. Um, are we going to see him captured in the coming months, or is this just going to go on indefinitely with him just on the loose? You know, I really don't think so. Um, I read on one website, uh, I don't have confirmation of this, though, but it did seem credible that the reason that the Congress upped the bounty for bin Laden to $50 million was because Musharraf was trying to bribe the tribes that govern the area where bin Laden is supposedly hiding, and they wanted more money, and then that way we could say, oh, we'll give you $50 million if you turn him in, and that's what Musharraf was trying to do. Um, I think bin Laden just has too much support in several different areas, and this one area called the Valley of Deer, uh, there's been any type of Westerner that goes into the area is killed, uh, it's basically an Islamic state in that area of Pakistan. Uh, the tribes can be easily bought off, and Bin Laden's people have a lot of money. And even if we were to shut off uh, the safe harbor that's in Pakistan, Bin Laden can go right back to Iran, where he has been spotted on several occasions. Uh, it's pretty much been widely confirmed that Bin Laden was in Iran at one point uh, about two years ago. Really? So you, you believe the stories that uh, bin Laden has been in Iran? And, it, and is that with the official sanction of the Iranian government? It has to be. The Iranian Revolutionary Guard run all the le illegal traffic that go on their border right there. Some people are trying to say that the Iranian Baluch, who are Sunni, are the ones that are smuggling in um, 
Bin Laden, but I really think that's just an Iranian cover story because Iran state press is constantly saying the Baluch who oppose their government are uh, are allies of al-Qaeda, and I, I just have trouble believing that. Hmm, that is interesting. Uh, there was a, a book about Iran uh, recently came out, well, it was last year, uh, talking about how uh, Iran was in alliance with al-Qaeda and was actually a co-sponsor of the 9-11 attack. Um, uh, Countdown to Crisis by Ken Timmerman. By Ken Timmerman, that's right. That was the book I'm thinking of. And I read that book, and I was dumbfounded. I mean, he had some good sources there that Iran was working with al-Qaeda. Is this ever going to be generally you know, proven and known uh, politically? And, and are we going to be able to do anything uh, ultimately about this aspect of the, the uh, al-Qaeda phenomenon? It seems that there's more concrete evidence that Iran is involved with al-Qaeda than there was with Iraq. I believe Iraq was working with al-Qaeda but it seemed to be hidden a little bit more than Iran's alliance with al-Qaeda. For whatever reason, the more people I talk to in the intelligence community, the more that they accept that al-Qaeda is at least in Iran. There's some debate as to whether it's the Iranian government uh, just turning a blind eye. Uh, some intelligence analysts come up with this preposterous notion that what's happening is that there's rogue elements of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard that are harboring al-Qaeda. I think that's ridiculous. It's being done with the assistance of the Iranian government. Um, yeah. But I do think a consensus is being built. The 9-11 Commission was very open about the fact that I think it was uh, eight of the hijackers had at some point traveled through Iran. And Timmerman, in the documents he brought forth, showed that U.S. intelligence documents said that they were traveling to Iran, and they met with uh, members of Hezbollah who were actually helping them travel around the Middle East. Hmm. That is astonishing. And, of course, uh, Iran's, uh, you'd mentioned before, being the number one sponsor, state sponsor of terrorism in the world, um, if we exclude the KGB regime in Russia, which is standing behind all of them. Um, is the ultimate strategy of the Iranians in getting a nuclear weapon to uh, only threaten to use it? Or, or is this talk in Iran of actually using a nuclear weapon against Israel or the United States. I mean, if they're linked with al-Qaeda and they're developing nuclear weapons, they could give nuclear weapons to al-Qaeda. Um, are they going to use them? Uh, do you think that's why they want these weapons, or is it just, just a form of protection for them? I think Iran could use them. I don't. A lot of people are kind of going off the deep end, in my opinion, that as soon as Iran gets a bomb, they're going to blow up Israel. I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think they're going to want to get a, a uh, stockpile, that they have some left over so that they continue to threaten um, us if they were to attack Israel with them. But more than likely, I think it's going to be used to frighten the West, that they have complete domination over the region. And I think what will probably happen is if they ever wanted to use them, the Iranian government knows that they need some sort of better justification. And I think their justification would be trying to provoke an Israeli or American airstrike on Iran that doesn't take out the regime. So then it's more accepted among the Muslim world and international community if Iran were to retaliate with nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. Could they pass it to al-Qaeda? That's possible, but everybody's going to know that some regime uh, passed it along to al-Qaeda, and everyone would point the finger at either North Korea, their ally, or Iran. So you basically think, as I do, that an American airstrike or preemptive strike on Iran against Iran's nuclear facility would be a mistake? I think so. And while most Iranians do oppose the uh, leaders 
nuclear weapons program. They support a nuclear energy program, but the Iranian people oppose a nuclear weapons program. There is about 20% or so of Iranians who support acquiring nuclear weapons. And frankly, we want as many Iranians on our side. Uh, I think attacking the nuclear sites could push a small percentage of Iranians to the regime's arms. But for all we know, that small percentage just might save the regime. If we were to attack Iran, our goal better be regime change, and we better have good enough intelligence to wipe out their command and control system within 24 hours. Otherwise, all hell is going to break loose. And of course, if President Adinejad is really as crazy as he sounds with his beliefs, uh, the, the Iranian leader, perhaps an airstrike on Iran would allow them to behave with weapons of mass destruction the way they sort of secretly dream or envision uh, a future destructive war and, and participating in starting it if their religion teaches that this chaos is what brings about the uh, arrival of their, what is it, the imam, the 12th imam? Yeah, that's right. Is that that's who they're waiting for? Uh, then, then they would be encouraged in, in their craziness to actually. So, in a way, it isn't just simply that they're rational. They are rational state actors, and and most of the time, everybody is rational most of the time. But we're also emotional part of the time, and we have beliefs, and uh, everybody believes something that someone else thinks is crazy. And in the case of the Iranian leaders, we don't want them to act on the beliefs that they have that we think are crazy. I agree. That's exactly the point I'm trying to make, is that Iran wants to start this chaos in order to bring about that apocalyptic vision where they feel that this uh, figure, which is basically their messiah, will come and vanquish their enemies uh, during a great war. So what Iran, the Iranian government, particularly Ahmadinejad, would want to do would be to provoke the United States or Israel into attacking Iran so that they have the justification to unleash all the weapons that they've planned to use against us for so long. Hmm. It's interesting, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan uh, Morrow. Do you have any uh, closing comments and, and perhaps uh, also mention your book and, and your website and any other products you have to offer people? Sure. Um, if you want to contact me or see uh, some of my writings, go to worldthreats.com. We're currently looking for some webmastering help because I want to redesign and really expand the website. So if anyone has a type of skills and could help me with that, that'd be fantastic. My The name of my book is Death to America, The Unreported Battle of Iraq. Uh, you can go to, you can get it at my website, worldthreats.com again. Uh, and thank you for having me on, Jeff. Yeah, Ryan, uh, one, one more question before you go. I was I was very interested uh, in your interview with Hamid Mir, and uh, he also had reported about Al Qaeda having nuclear weapons. And I, I I forgot to ask you what what is your impression of this? Uh, is he is he right to say that the that Bin Laden has nuclear weapons, and and how does that work? I'm very uh, torn up about this one. There is a significant amount of intelligence indicating that Al Qaeda has obtain nuclear weapons. At the same time, though, I can't get myself past the fact that Al-Qaeda hasn't used them. The only way I can rationalize that is either Al-Qaeda has them and they weren't able to use them, either they don't have the expertise or the weapons didn't work, or Al-Qaeda really doesn't have them, or Al-Qaeda does have them, but they have to get permission from a state sponsor before they can use them. Now, that is an interesting idea. Is it Hamid Mir's understanding that these nuclear weapons came through Chechnya or Central Asia in the former Soviet Union? 
That's right. All the intelligence indicates that they came through the former Soviet Union. Every single bit says that uh, the Chechen mafia, working with some corrupt KGB officials, obtained the nuclear weapons, and then they were passed along to Osama bin Laden's organization. Hmm. And of course, uh, the idea would be to smuggle these into the United States and uh, or the UK as well and detonate them uh, on major cities. That's right, although it's possible that this could be uh, some sort of disinformation campaign coming from Russia or some other countries um, trying to cover themselves if they have contingency plans to do that themselves should a war break out, because Russia has long had plans to smuggle yeah. small nuclear weapons onto American soil. Yeah, that's a very good point. And in fact, uh, there have been Russian defectors that have even, uh, military defectors from the GRU, two of them who have mentioned this uh, as part of Russia's future plans against the United States. Well, Ryan, uh, thank you for being on the show again, and I uh, want to encourage the listeners to go to Ryan's website, worldthreats.com, and to read Death to America, Ryan's book. Uh, thank you again for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Okay, Ryan, we'll take care. Let's, let's do this again in the future. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist. WIBG Proactive Local News. When you have to know. You have to know. You've come to the station that gives you local and regional news all the time. 1020 WIBG Proactive Local News. All around Atlantic City as you look at our landscape, you see signs of investment in Atlantic City. South Jersey, Philadelphia area's only Christian station with proactive local news. It's local and regional news when you need it. 1020 WIBG Proactive Local News. Some of our beaches in the northern end have been eaten away. Right now, Rick. South Jersey. Philadelphia area's only Christian station with proactive local news. 1020 WIBG. We've got you covered. Covered. And now once again, here's your host of the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Well, it looks like America is in trouble. In trouble because of what's happening in the Middle East. My guest tonight, uh, Ryan Morrow, he laid it out. And if you uh, look at the bottom line, the bottom line is the United States seems headed to elect a Democrat in the next election, and that's going to mean pulling out of Iraq. And pulling out of Iraq, just as my guest tonight explained, for many reasons, will prove catastrophic for the U.S. position, not only in the Middle East, but internationally, and could prove disastrous in terms of the price of gasoline and uh, your standard of living and the American economy. So it's it's not good news. And uh, I just hope that uh, something happens between now and Election Day that we get a better set of candidates, people who are not going to say that we're going to pull out. Because whatever you think about going in, now that we're in, we have to stick it out because of the consequences of pulling out of Iraq. I am Jeff Nyquist. I hope you'll join me next week at the same time for the Jeff Nyquist program. From the Jeff Nyquist studios on California's north coast and from our flagship broadcast facilities at WIBG 1020, you've been listening to the Jeff Nyquist radio show. We invite you to join us again next week at the same time. In the meantime, please visit Jeff's website at jrnyquist.com. Again, that's jrnyquist.com.